God's grace and His mercy and His peace are yours in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So in preparing for this, um, for this one, you know, it's, it's a little tricky this year, Christmas. Um, you know, so often we want it to be filled with just light and presents and gingerbread houses and gumballs and, you know, home alone and, you know, it would be great, and it's, it's a joy, and, and it's wonderful when our families can gather, and I hope that if that's happening for you, praise God, and it's wonderful to be able to, to have that happen. And so, you know, as I was talking with Teresa about this, I'm like, I'm like you know, how do you speak honestly into this year? You know, how do you, how do you speak honestly into it without being a big bunch of down, but still pointing, right, still lifting our eyes and do that? So it's, it's, a, little, it's a little interesting what I did was I started looking at hopeless moments in history. That was exciting and fun. Um, but uh, you, know, you know the one that just, just leaps off the page is um, in the 13th, 14th centuries, the, the bubonic plague, you know, the Black Death. And uh, it's fascinating. I talked about Stephen King on Sunday. The Stand is coming out today. They're the first episode of The Stand. Like everybody dies. You know, it's so hopeful. Um, but the Black Plague, I don't know if you knew this, it startled me when I read it, 200 million people. 200 million. And think about the world's population then. I mean, how much less it was. 60% of Europe died. Um, you know, I think about our own history in America. You know, the most devastating thing that's ever struck the United States was not the uh, Spanish flu in 1918, it was Civil War. 500,000 people died north and south, in a country that was about 10 to 20% of our current size, 500,000. Um, a whole generation was essentially lost. And then you do get to something like the Spanish flu, 650,000 Americans, you know, died. And then you move forward a little bit more in some of the most, most hopeless moments. One of my favorite books of all time, Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck, talks about the Dust Bowl and Depression era and how, like, the whole state of Nebraska went up and moved to Oregon. I don't mean people. I mean the dirt. Um, you know, they just lost their livelihoods, and it was a hopeless time. I mean, my dad talks about never having a new pair of shoes for, like, six years. And, uh, you know, newspaper and cardboard, um, that they would put in there. And, and they, you know, and they just never knew when they would get something new. Really, they had no hope for that. Um, now, they weren't dying, but they didn't have hope for an improved future. Then you move forward to something like uh, World War II. And the aftermath after that, I mean, the most devastating war in our world's history so far, worldwide conflict, at least that we have records on and so forth. You know, so much has happened in our world that we don't have data for. And to be honest, who knows if you can trust the data now? You know, nobody knows. But we do know some things about that, and especially when we think of the Holocaust. And I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It is just stunning. If you've been to the one in Washington, D.C., it just, it's sobering. I mean, it's, sobering is far too light a word. Uh, and, and you hear different stories. Like when I was in high school, one of the books I was assigned to read was by Eli Wiesel. It was, it's a book called Night. And it is as depressing and despairing a book as you can read. Because he, they walked into that Jewish people calling upon the name of their Lord God. 
and by the end of it, Eli Wiesel is absolutely convinced there is no God, that there cannot possibly be a God. He despairs. He is without hope. None. Corey Tenboom, on the other hand, is a fascinating, different experience. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place, and her Christian family, they were sent to concentration camps, she and her sister Betsy, for harboring Jewish refugees. And it's, a fa- it's a, just a tremendous story. Corey Tenboom died in 1983. I got to see her in person, um, talk, and, wit- and my mom took me to it. I was, in my te- I was a teenager. It's about 79, 1979, 78. And so when I went to see her, and it was just amazing to hear, because we had read the book. My mom was a huge, it was a tremendous story of Christian witness in the face of horror and evil to do the right and to care for those. Even though you didn't, even share, you didn't share faith with them, you still, you did the right. And their, their, their family paid the ultimate price. Corey is the, was the only survivor. Her sister Betsy And this was the test of Corey's face. Corey always said Betsy was the rock of faith in their family. And Betsy died in the concentration camp, Ravensbrook, it was called, a horror show for women. And she died in Ravensbrook, not of going to the gas chamber, but she died of just, she just died from, she lost all her body mass. She just got sick and died. And as she watched her sister waste away, Corey's faith despaired and lost more and more. As she went along, filled with bitter angerness, anger, bitterness, sorry, anger, bitterness, hatred of her oppressors, understandably. Understandably. And as her sister's about to die, she can see her just fading away from her. She is deciding, Corey, and I heard that she talked about this in the in the in the lecture hall. I was losing my faith. And Betsy's words have become a famous quote to her. She said, Corey. This is like just hours before she died. There is no hole so deep that God is not deeper still. And so, you know, those words in the moment of, of where you believe you are at the very bottom. And so, you know, and it's interesting because when I talk about all those things, and, and this was a kind of a kind of an interesting joke, you know, at the beginning of lockdowns and all that kind of stuff when we were in lockdown here in March, April, and, you know, and, and it was worse in other parts of the country. still is in some. And it was interesting because you see memes on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever. And it was like, you know, early Christians were thrown to the lions and we're asked to stay home and watch Netflix. You know. And it was a little bit tone deaf. A little bit tone deaf because I, it's hard to, I don't know. I mean, I now know dozens of people who have contracted COVID, and uh, some who were severely impacted, several who have died. I'm guessing that that's true for the vast majority of us, that you know someone or have a colleague, a friend, a family member, you've been in communication, and so it's impacted us broadly. And yet, we have not seen the de- you know, that hopelessness is a little different than our hopelessness. But you know what it's result, and you know what the difference is? We have been so blessed. You know, in the 13th century, they expected to die. Today, no one expects to die. You get the difference? We are almost so comfortable or so blessed, and we fail to say thank you. That's a whole other sermon. We're not good at being grateful and recognizing that the era and the age in which we live with in is a miracle 
in many, many, many ways. You know, black death, civil war, life was brutal and short, right? That kind of thing. So our difference is that we are so unused to it. And what we've seen is, especially among our youngest people, the suicide rate is just exploding. Depression, clinical depression, exploding. The isolation. Technology is okay. It doesn't replace. And so we're longing for that restoration of relationship and all of those things which actually do, in fact, nurture, foster, and generate hope. And so into the midst of that, what I want you to know is, so the first thing I really want to say is, I'm not saying, well, this is nothing compared to that. I'm not saying that at all. This is a thing that's devastating people, and, it, and we think it shouldn't. And yet it does. It doesn't matter if we think it shouldn't. It is. And so it's critical that we're bringing the message of hope and light and encouragement that is, that is Christmas, the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's just critical. So here's my point. When I look back at Scripture, I don't know if you realize this, all through, all through Scripture, all through salvation history, at, at almost every critical juncture, there's a birth that brings hope. Okay, for example, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> you're saying, oh, crud, he's going all the way back there. It's going to take forever. So Adam and Eve, right? So they sin, they're in rebellion. And God says to the devil, right? Says to the serpent, one of her kids is gonna come and destroy you. You're gonna crush your head. You'll injure him, but he crush your head. You know what Eve does? Next first kid she has. And you know first kid, Cain, right? He didn't turn out so good. But you don't know that when they're babies, right? She has this baby. And you know what she says? And it's interesting because Martin Luther, when he studies this, Martin Luther was an Old Testament professor. And he said, you know what the Hebrew says? I have brought forth a son, the Lord. And he, he reads that in the Hebrew and he says, she thinks that's the one. That that's the Messiah. That God had put into the woman and in every woman to follow the, the promise that from you from, is, is going to come a Savior. That's how God did it. He put it in the seed of it. It's amazing. So, I mean, that birth was the start of the promise of the Messiah. Now, she says, this is the Savior. He's the one. This is the one you promised, right? And it's not. But she's hopeful. She's filled with hope for that. Here's another one. Abraham, right? You go to Abraham. God says to Abraham, hey, come for a walk on the beach with me. See all these grains of sand? That's how many kids you're going to have. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Look up in the sky. See the star? Did you see the cool star a couple nights ago? Kind of cool that it's a Christmas. It wasn't a star, you know. You'll correct me. Um, but the alignment of planets, it was very cool. God says, see the stars? That's how many descendants you'll have. Well, Abraham's, okay, that's awesome, right? 70, 80, 90. Dude's 100 years old. He's going, okay. And so finally, he has one. Finally, he has one. And when the angel comes and says, okay, now it's time. You're going to have a kid. And Sarah, of course, she laughs her head off. I'm old. It ain't, this ain't, ain't happened. I'm 100 years old. And God gives them a son they name Laughter. That's God's sense of humor. Trust me on this. Next one, Moses. Israelites are Jews. I mean, the Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. They're slaves. Pharaoh is jealous of them because God keeps blessing them. He says, kill every male baby. 
And they keep having babies. So mama puts Moses in a basket, puts him in the reeds in the Nile River. Do they still tell that story in Sunday school? It's a good one. And, and so his big sister is waiting in the weeds, and here comes Pharaoh's daughter. She spies this beautiful little Hebrew baby in the reeds. She says, oh, I want this baby. She says, but it's a little Hebrew baby. I don't know how to raise him. Here comes Miriam. I got someone who will. Takes him home. God, pre- 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 God preserves his people to save them from slavery. Hannah, longing for a child. And by the way, you might think, well, this isn't like a savior of the world. Her, her kid is Samuel. But now, and this is always where I feel inadequate, ladies. Please understand how tender I want to say this. Because I can't speak to it as well because I'm a man. But I have met with and prayed with many women who struggle to have children. And their hearts ache. They ache. And I just so much want to be able to speak into their heart love and compassion and listening because I know what a blessing my kids have been and how their birth changed everything for me. Hannah is that example of a mommy simply wanting to be a mommy. God puts that in us too. And then Isaiah and Ahaz. The country's about to be destroyed by Assyria. King Ahaz is terrified. He doesn't know what to do. Isaiah says, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. There's a promise of a child for you, and that will prove to you that God is with you. And then uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, this is Mary's cousin. She's old, old. He works in the temple. And God says, I'm going to send one who's going to prepare the way for my Messiah. His name's John the Baptist to give hope because when the forerunner came, they knew that the Messiah was not far behind. And then finally you get Mary, 14, 15, 16 years old, unmarried. And God puts her in a situation where all she can do is trust. It's all she has because the comments, the looks, the stares, the horrible insults, the demeaning taunts that she must have endured as her pregnancy showed more and more. What a person of tremendous faith. What a blessing. And so how often do you think she may have felt hopeless? And so God, in all of those instances, brings a child to give hope. In this era which we live right now, because this era is marked so much, not just by the circumstances of a virus, but how little we were able to get along and work together to try to conquer it. It's marked by division, distrust, discord, anger, bitterness. Am I wrong? Those are the, that's what makes this moment, this last year, so devastating. You know what? If we could have banded together, we'd have beat this thing together and it would have been a victory. And instead, all we did was chip at each other accuse each other and never encouraged each other. And what God is longing to do is the opposite. And so it's the birth of a child that wants to do that because I believe that the impact, the devastating impact of this year is that there are people, some of you may be sitting here tonight, and if you're not, you may, I, I, I can hardly believe you do not know someone who might say this, yeah, yeah, pastor, that, that's good for you. Maybe there's hope for you. I ain't buying it. They're either saying there's no hope for me or I don't want it. And so the theme tonight is 
There's not just hope for some, not just hope for a few. There's hope for everyone. That's the purpose of what God is saying. Because the moment we say, there may be hope for you, but none for me, we have lost the gift which God is longing to give. You know, the birth of the child is why this is so powerful. The birth of this baby is God pleading with us. Pleading. Turn your attention here. Not upon discord and strife and distrust. Turn your eyes here. He is pleading with his world and his people to fix their eyes on our Savior. Why? So that we can think differently about the future. So it changes our mind. So that we we say, I love this statement, so that we might begin agreeing with God rather than disagreeing with all our neighbors. Our hope does not come or is dependent upon a vaccine. Our hope is not dependent upon a new president or new legislation or on a stimulus check or our kids' success or our health. Our hope is not dependent upon any of those things. God is longing for us to think differently at the birth of his son. Every one of those biblical characters set the stage for this birth, this book, this birth. They're in the book. They made it in the book so that we might fix our attention on this birth, this hope. You know, an error that sometimes we make is this. We, we live our lives as if we're exempt. We're always stunned when we find out we have cancer. We're always stunned when we learn that, oh my gosh, I'm positive for COVID, or we're stunned that it, everything didn't always work out, as if this broken world is supposed to function right all the time, and we're like caught off guard. We're like exempt. I'm exempt from heartache and hurt and those kinds of things. And we learn a hard lesson there because we learn over time, I guess we're not exempt. And so then our hearts turn, the faithful turn to God who knows suffering, who knows hurt, and who intervenes into our life to heal and to walk with us. But you know what the sadder part is? Way too often do the same people or many of us think we're exempt from the grace part too. We're not. No one's exempt from the grace part. Jesus did not just come and grow up and live and die just for the people who were good. There ain't none. Every one of us broken and fallen short of the glory of God. But he also didn't just come for those who would believe in that promise. He came even for the person who would spit in his face and nail him to a cross. He still came for them. And if you feel that you may be one of those who said, I've spit in God's face too many times, or there is no way that he can, or why would he care about me? How could he forgive me? You are not exempt from the grace of God. It is for you also. It is not for some and not for, and for some and not for others. This is a hope that's for everyone. Let me give you an example. My first couple of years of being a pastor, I was in the Seattle area and had a family. They went through a whole process, wanted to become members. They had like four kids. How am I doing? Okay. I might go five after. They wanted, this is a, this is a great story though. Neat, neat family. Very, very active Christians. And I, said, I just said to them, hey, just want to check. 
you know, is everyone baptized in your family and this kind of thing? And they said, oh, yeah, we're all baptized, except for Kevin. Of course, he can never be baptized. And I said, what are you talking about? Well, he said, it's Kevin. And it's Kevin, who we came to know really well, I knew him, was an autistic kid with enough, severe enough autism that he had a helmet. And he would periodically, things, something would come unhinged, and he would run, run himself into walls, and he, you had to protect him, and you had to keep him safe. And he was lovable, dear, dear kid. Not super verbal, and probably functioned at about three, something like that. But they said, well, of course he can't be baptized. I said, what do you, what, why? I said, what, what, do you, you think, what does he have to apply for God's grace? Isn't God allowed to pour out his grace upon those who he deems his own? And so you're his parents. Drag that kid to the waters of baptism. I said, let's do it tomorrow. I said, because here's the thing. If God's grace was dependent upon what we say, what we do, what we, then it's all about us. And that takes hope away. When are you ever sure you did it right? When are you ever sure you did enough? And so I loved that. I said to him, you guys, God is longing to pour out his gifts and his grace, to place his name upon Kevin, to wash him free of his sins, and to welcome him into his family as his own adopted child. I said, Kevin doesn't apply to be in God's family. God makes him his own. That's hope for everyone. I, there were so many tears from those, fan, from those parents who were so grateful, who believed they were absolutely without hope that Kevin could ever receive the gifts of grace and grace of God like their other children did. And I said, then it's not grace. But because it's grace, it's hope for everyone. And that's who came at Christmas Eve. Hope for everyone.